This will come as a shock to you, but I did some counting this week. I have been privileged uh, to be the senior pastor at Alliance for over 14 years now. Should be a couple more ahead there. There we go, 14 years. Uh, no, 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 that's not, no, 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 that's what I'm saying. During that, uh, during that time, I have preached some 600 Sunday morning messages. You, you might be interested to know that there are 260 chapters in the New Testament, and I have to date, preached 141 of them. 141 in 14 years, that's an average about 10 per year. We have 119 New Testament chapters left. At a rate of 10 chapters per year, we should finish the New Testament in about 12 years, meaning we should get through the New Testament at the blazing speed of 26 years. Now, some of you were here when I began And remember that I started in James, what most scholars um, believe was the first book written in the New Testament. Uh, Then we went on and studied the book of Acts, the account of the foundation of the church, finishing with Paul's three missionary journeys. We then launched into Paul's letters in the order that he wrote them. We've taken a couple of breaks to study a couple of gospels, Matthew and John, and yes, I know, Matthew was a four-year break. So, Studying Paul's letters, we've looked at Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and Romans. Six of Paul's letters, we have seven left. His four so-called prison epistles, Ephesians, um, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and his three pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Eventually, we are going to get to the rest of those general epistles from Hebrews to Revelation, and yes, I'm saving Revelation for last, since it was the last one written, as I've said before, I hope I'm dead by then. (laughs) We will eventually take some time to study those other two Gospels, Mark and Luke. Well, last week, we found ourselves beginning Paul's next book, Ephesians. Remember, he's under house arrest in Rome, two years, that's in Acts chapter 28. During that time, he wrote these four prison epistles. Suggested there doesn't appear to be any pressing need to write the book of Ephesians. There are no divisions, no false teachings, no seeming problems in the church. He just simply seems to sit back, relax, and share some things that are most important to his heart. So, after identifying himself as the author, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and and identifying the recipients of the letter to the um, saints who are at Ephesus, and after the typical greeting, Um, to the church, grace to you and peace, Paul launches into an extended praise. You see, typically in letters of the day, to include Paul's letters, after the greeting, Paul would offer a thanksgiving for his readers. He doesn't actually do that until he gets to verses 15 and following. First, he offers this extended praise. It covers verses 3 to 14, one sentence in the Greek comprised of two 102 words. That's long. It's been called a eulogy. Now, we typically think of eulogies only given at funerals, but the truth is they're given at other times as well. Because you see, the word eulogy comes from two Greek words that simply means good words. And so, yes, at a funeral, you usually offer good words in memory of the deceased. Sometimes you're wondering if you're at the right place. Um, Uh, But other times, for example, when you're introducing a a speaker, sometimes you'll give a 
a, a biography of good words about the speaker. The description on the back of a, of a book tells you something about the author, how many books he's written, where he teaches, yada, yada, good words. Well, here, Paul launches into an extended eulogy about God in verses 3 to 14. In fact, the first word of this very long sentence is the word from which we get our word eulogy. Praise, good words to God. Some have rightly suggested that it follows a Jewish pattern of a barakah. Uh, I, I think that's right. Now, 202 words, there is no way to adequately cover the whole sentence in one sermon. So I'm going to break it down, you'll be glad, into manageable chunks. If you look at it closely, you'll notice that it follows a bit of a Trinitarian formula. That is, it mentions the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in that order. And it almost seems to follow a chronology from the Father's work in eternity past to the Son's present and ongoing work to the Spirit's present and future work. And then we will notice as we read this long sentence that each of those sections ends with words that are similar to, to the praise of His glory. So we're going to take some time to read the whole sentence with that um, structure in mind. Look at it, past work of the Father, verses 3 to 6, and that's as far as we're going to get this morning, the, the present and ongoing work of the Son, and then the present and future work um, of the Spirit. Another said it this way, if you like alliteration, it's the selection of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the seal of the Spirit. But I want you to, as we read it, I want you to notice how each one ends with a praise, with praise to the glory of God. This is a eulogy about our good God. Remember that as we make our way through this passage. Read it with me. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and following say this, blessed or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How? Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's the end of that first section. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Period. No period in the Greek. We should just keep reading. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, and he, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Take a breath. Not the end of the sentence. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Second section. Third section, same sentence. In Him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Aren't you glad I'm breaking this up into three sermons? Okay, so 
So why did I recite all of those statistics at the beginning of our time together? Because this morning, we're going to work at, look at words like, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at words like, having been predestined according to His purpose, meaning we are going to talk about election and predestination. And I want to point out to you, I did not pick this topic. It's in the text. It's not like I ride the hobby horse of predestination. In fact, to quote one author, while predestination is a favorite topic in theological discussions, the word only appears six times in the New Testament. Six times. That's it. You talk to some people and they think it's like every other verse. Two times are in this one long sentence, which means we're going to cover it this week and next. And the other four times were once in Acts 4, twice in Romans 9, and once in 1 Corinthians 2, which means we've already covered it. So, if you don't like this today, I have good news. I am a check-the-box kind of guy. We've already covered those books. We're going to cover the last two times the New Testament uses the word predestination this week and next. You never have to hear it again. That's not exactly true. Because you see, there are some other authors and other books that use words like chosen or elect. Here's, here's my point. Yes, I know that we just covered this in Romans chapter 9 if you were here, but Ephesians is next. I'm not picking topics. I'm not choosing to ram predestination down our collective throats. In fact, someone said to me recently, I've been, after Romans 9, I've been coming to Alliance for about 10 years and I didn't know that we were reformed. Reform means that we believe in predestination. Listen, we have to believe in predestination. It's in the Bible. But I trust that through my 14 years of ministry that I have proven myself to be faithful to the Scripture. I'm just teaching the texts and topics as they come. Now, even as I say that, I do not want it to sound like that I'm apologizing or that I'm embarrassed, or that I don't like this stuff. The truth is, I love this teaching because I believe that it keeps God, God. It keeps God at the center of His creation, and it makes it all about Him. Do you remember I took great pains last week um, to suggest that the theme of Ephesians is found in verse 10, the summing up of all things in the heavens and on the earth in Christ. It is all about, thank you, Ken, it is all about Him. And this doctrine, I believe, keeps it about Christ. Listen very carefully. It is not about me and my choice of God. It is about Him and His choice of me. To the praise 
of the glory of His grace. So with all of that as an introduction, let's jump into the text I admittedly love with the following outline. We're going to see the blessing of God serves as the introduction to the whole eulogy. We're going to see the election or choice of God. We're going to see the predestination of God, which again brings us back to the praise of God in verse 6. Look at verse 3 with me again. Paul cleverly uses the word blessed three times in this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The first use of the word bless, remember that's the word eulogy, simply means praise, good words. Praise, honor, exaltation, glory be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice within the Trinity, God is eternally and uniquely the Father of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so Paul starts with blessing or praising God. Now, you need to understand, when we bless God, it's not like that we're giving Him something, well, except praise. I mean, we use the word that way, and in fact, Paul is going to use that word, the word that way next. We say something like, I want to bless you by giving you something. Here, Paul simply means good words, praise to God. We praise Him because He has blessed us. This time He changes the nuance of the word. God is not praising us. He is blessing or enriching us by giving us stuff, benefits, success. In the Old Testament, it was success, happiness, possessions, power. We saw that a lot. Here, Paul says he has blessed us with every, notice, spiritual benefit, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In fact, as you read through this eulogy, you find the Father is the initiator of every blessing. He's the one who's doing this. He blesses us. He chose us. He predestined us. He lavished His grace on us. He made known the mystery to us. No wonder God is to be praised. I want you to notice, it's an accomplished fact, He has already given us every spiritual blessing. Now, while His promises to the Old Testament uh, people often entailed physical blessing, land, uh, crops, animals, um, houses. Here, Paul makes the blessing more, makes it spiritual. That's not to say that God does not meet physical needs today. He does. But the emphasis in this eulogy is on His spiritual blessings. Notice these blessings come to us in Christ. That is because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Once again, we remember that the theme is summing up everything in Christ. It's all about Him, which is why the name Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ or Him appears 15 times in the first 14 verses of this book. And 11 times words like in Him or in Christ um, appear. It is every blessing we have is because of Christ. Paul says these blessings are granted us, uses an interesting word, in the heavenlies or in um, the heavenly places. Uh, that, that word appears, kind of an interesting word, appears five times, so I'm going to say more about it later. 
Uh, but, but what it means, it speaks of a spiritual sphere. It's above the earthly physical dimension of existence. It speaks of God's place of abode. It speaks of the place where spiritual warfare takes place. We're going to see that in our study of the book. So, Paul says, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Question, what are those spiritual blessings? Well, he goes on to enumerate them in the rest of the eulogy, beginning with the election of God in verse 4. Look at it with me again. Just as, or we could say because, we bless Him, because He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. The first spiritual blessing we've received is God's choosing us in Christ. Now, there are a number of verses in the Bible which speak of God's choosing us. We saw it, for example, in Romans chapter 9. For though the twins, talking about Jacob and Esau, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice, there's the word, according to election, your translation may have it, would stand not because of works, but because of Him who calls. He said to her, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Different Greek word, but the same concept is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, um, uh, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy 2, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Different author, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who uh, reside as aliens scattered throughout yada yada, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I think, I think we get the idea. We are blessed because we have been chosen by God. Now, we have to ask some questions about this choosing. First, when did God choose us? You say, well, that's real simple. When I, when I prayed and asked Him to. That's not what it says. Here in other places, Paul says we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Before creation, before there was anything he chose us. Why is this important? Because Paul is making clear that God's choice of us was irrespective of merit. It wasn't about anything that we deserved. It's why we call it grace. It's getting what we do not deserve. Remember, Paul said it this way about Jacob and Esau. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that, so that it's not has, it, has anything to do with good or bad, so that God's purpose and election might stand, he said, I'm picking the little one. I'm picking the younger one. Before we were born, in fact, before anyone was born, he made a choice for us, is what the text says. It is also, I want to suggest, irrespective of temporal or end-time events or end-time consequences. It was not like that there were certain circumstances that caused God to choose us. It was before 
time and before merit. His choice of us, listen, is based on His own sovereign, gracious nature and purpose so that it is all about Him and not about me. To quote Dr. Harold Honer of Dallas Theological Seminary, that's a big, thick commentary. I have. Man, I love it. It's really good. Listen to what he says. Nor is it election, is what he's talking about, nor is election because God, by means um, of His foresight or omniscience, knew who would have faith in Him, which then becomes the basis of His election of them. Like that God looked in the future and said, oh, this person will choose me, so I'll choose them. This suggests more than the passage claims. And furthermore, verse 5 states that God's selection was done on the basis of, his, of the good pleasure of His will. So, so His choice of us was His choice. It's not a response of my choice of Him that would be me choosing. I didn't choose. He chose. Next question you might ask, but but wait a minute. Doesn't He choose everyone? And and it's it's up to people to respond to Him in faith? Well, the second part of that is true. It is up to us to respond in faith. However, I want you to get this. In every place where the concept of God's choosing, where God is the, the actor, the subject, in every place where the concept of God's choosing appears in Scripture, it is always His choosing some out of the whole. In other words, nowhere does the Bible say God chooses everyone. I want to gently suggest that it says just the opposite. He chose Abraham out of all the people of the world. He he chose the Israelites out of all of the nations of the world. Read the Old Testament. See if you think they deserved it. Jesus chose the twelve out of all of the disciples who were following Him. And God chose some out of all of the mass of humanity to bless them, to be the recipients of His grace. So, the text says He chose before time, making His choice irrespective of merit, of anything that we could or would do. He chose some, not all, which leads to the next question. To what end did He choose? What was the, was the end result? Paul says that we would be holy and blameless beforehand. This is the end result of His choosing, that having chosen us for salvation, th- those chosen would become holy and blameless, would become. Several thoughts about that. First, this is the language of Old Testament sacrifice. The fa- sacrifice chosen was to be without blemish. That's the idea here. But Choosing that we would become holy and blameless indicates something very important. I want you to get this. We were not holy and blameless. That takes us back to choosing before the foundation of the world. It was irrespective of merit. It had to be irrespective because none of us deserved to be chosen. None of us. None of us were already holy and blameless. We had to be made holy and blameless. 
He didn't choose us because we were holy, but to become holy. Again, Dr. Honer says it this way. All people, Paul says it this way too, are sinners and deserve rejection, not choice. They deserve rejection. There was no obligation on God's part to choose anyone, but He freely chose some, and this is evidence of His great grace. The point is that if God had not taken the initiative, the initiative we see throughout this eulogy, no one would have His everlasting presence in life. The real problem is not why He had not chosen some, but why He chose any. No wonder God is to be praised. Now, Paul has already called those in Ephesus saints. We saw that last week. So there must be some sense in which we are already holy, but also becoming holy. Uh, Theologians describe this as positional versus practical holiness. We are currently holy, set apart because of what Christ has done for us, and so we then, as a consequence, pursue practical holiness. We are engaged in a process of sanctification whereby we become more holy. So, this really, what Paul says here, really has a forward look to it, that we might be or become holy and blameless before Him. Paul gives us the sense of this in in Ephesians chapter 5, same author, same book, speaking of the church, Jesus' desire is to sanctify her, that is to make her holy by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present the church to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The idea is that it's future when Christ comes, we as a church will then be perfectly holy and without blame. Until then, we pursue holiness. So, the first spiritual blessing we've received is we have been chosen um, in Christ before the foundation of the world. And He wants us to be holy and blameless. And by the way, He has given us His Spirit to ensure that end result. We'll see that in a couple of weeks, which leads to the next spiritual blessing, verse 5. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention, it's actually better translated, good pleasure of His will. A second spiritual blessing is predestination. He predestined us. The word literally means to set boundaries or to decide or to determine before. I already mentioned this, but um, while it's a favorite topic for discussion and argument among theologians and wannabe theologians, this word is only used six times in the New Testament. And it is always used as with God as the subject. God is always doing the predestinating. So, look at them with me. Acts chapter 4, for truly in this city, this is a prayer, truly in this city, God, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This was a prayer by the early church asking for God's protection after they were commanded not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus anymore. So they prayed, they acknowledged that 
Herod and Pilate, Jews and Gentiles, conspired against Jesus to put him to death. But in so doing, the prayer says they only carried out what God predestined to occur. In other words, God decided before, He determined beforehand that Jesus would die on His cross. It was part of God's plan. Even before the foundation of the world, God knew that His Son would die. Most of us don't have a problem with that. The next use in order of the, of the books written is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yet we do speak, Paul says, wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor um, of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak, here's what you need to get, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Not going into a lot of technical detail, basically what Paul is saying is that God predestined that His wisdom found in the cross, that is the gospel, formerly hidden, would now be proclaimed for our glory. Again, most people don't have a problem with the predestined plan of the cross. They don't have a problem with the predestined plan of the gospel that God predetermined that people would be saved by the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ. The next two uses of the word. That's first two. Next two uses of the word are found in the same passage in Romans 8, which we already studied. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's holy and blameless so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. These whom He justified, He also glorified. There we saw that God foreknew certain people. And these people that He foreknew in a special way, He predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, listen. We cannot say that God foreknew everyone in the same way because there's a progression here. Those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He will also glorify. He did not predestine everyone because not everyone will be justified and glorified. So again, we see that He chooses and predestines only some within the mass of humanity. And this is where we start having problems. Yeah, God can predetermine the cross. That's fine. Yeah, He can predetermine the plan, the gospel. But no, He cannot predetermine those who will be saved by the cross and the plan. And yet, that's what Paul says. He predestined some out of the whole group for salvation. See, at least the last two uses of the word found in this long eulogy in, in Ephesians 1, in love He predestined us to adoption according to the kind intention of His will. Verse 11, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. So God chose us to be holy and blameless, and He predestined, that means He determined beforehand that we would be adopted. 
There's no concept of adoption in the Jewish world. It was a concept that Paul actually borrowed from the Roman world. He's the only one who uses it. Uh, We saw this before, Romans 8. We saw that we've received a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, or Father. In the Roman world, to be adopted, this is very important, to be adopted is to be brought into a family by the will and choice of the family father. And having been brought into the family by the father's choice, we thereby receive all the benefits of a son or or a daughter to include the rights of inheritance. You see, Paul later is going to tell us that we were sons of disobedience. He's going to tell us that we were children of, of wrath. Jesus said that we were children of the devil. And all of that is no longer. The old father has no claims or rights on us now. We've been adopted into the family of God by His choice, made His sons and daughters, and receiving the benefits of family membership. Notice this adoption was through Jesus Christ. In other words, made possible by the Christ's work on the cross. Notice also that the Father adopted us to Himself. It's very important. You see, that takes us back to the first two words, last two words actually of verse 4, but it goes with verse 5. In love, He predestined us. You see, one of the knocks against predestination, since it was done before the foundation of the world, without regard um, to the ones chosen, without regard to merit, is that it seems like that it makes God capricious and, and, and His choices arbitrary. It's not true. It was in His loving foreknowledge of us because He has always known and loved us. He adopted us, notice, to Himself. He, by His choice, brought us into the family to Himself so that we can say to Him, Abba, Daddy. It's a very loving, personal, non-arbitrary, non-capricious choice in love of us to Himself. In fact, Paul drives the point home with the last phrase of verse 5. This predestination was according, it says to the kind intention, I don't understand that translation at all, um, better, according to the good pleasure of His will. This idea of His uh, uh, predestinating us was pleasing to Him. It was according to His will and it brought him pleasure. This was not an arbitrary choice. He knew you, and he loved you. Now, let me quickly address the idea that, uh, because when we come to this passage, um, it, it spells things out pretty clearly. And, and so, one way that what I just taught is combated is the idea that, well, yeah, God chose a group of people, but He didn't choose individuals within the group. See, notice that, God, uh, that Paul always uses um, plural pronouns in this eulogy, just as He chose us in Him, that we would be, that we would be holy. He predestined us to adoption, etc., etc. The idea, some suggest, is God predestined that there would be a group of people saved, They call that corporate election, but that He did not choose the individuals who make up or comprise that group. 
Lots of problems with that. Let me just list a few. First, Paul does not, I mean, Paul does say we and us, but by that he certainly included himself and his readers, the Ephesians, within the group. Yes, it is true that God elected, chose, and predestined a group that we can call the church, but he also individually elected those who would comprise the group. Let me give you this example. When I choose members of my team on the playground. I choose the team by choosing the individuals who make up the team. Did I choose my team? Yeah, that's true. Did I choose Johnny to be part of the team? Yes. Is it corporate election? Of course, he chose the church. But as one commentary says, corporate election is right in what it affirms and wrong in what it denies. That is individual election. Uh, Another thought, back in John chapter 6, already looked at it, John chapter 6, Jesus said, all, that's plural, all that the Father has given me will come to me. That's the group, right? Yep, that's the group. The group will come. Then he goes on to say, and I will lose none, that's individual, that the Father has given me. I will lose no individual within the group because of individual election. And lastly, remember when talking about election, in Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about individuals, Jacob, Esau, Moses, Pharaoh. Did God choose a group called the church so that Paul can say, we have been chosen? Yes. Did he choose the individuals within the group, Paul, the Ephesians, you and me? Yes. And that brings me to my final thoughts and, and closing. We get to, this all brings us to the praise of God in verse 6. He did all of this to the praise of the glory of His grace, this grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. You see, the result of God's electing, predestinating choice is, is supposed to be the praise of the glory of His grace the grace that He has freely, not coerced, freely bestowed on us because grace is unmerited. It's not based on anything that we have done or would not do to earn it. Freely bestowed in the Beloved. We know other places where uh, uh, the baptism of Jesus and His transfiguration where God referred to Him as His Beloved Son. Folks, this is a eulogy. These are good words about God. This is supposed to be good news. You, you know, I, I just kind of have in my mind's eye that as, as Paul, you, you know that he typically used a scribe, and as Paul was, was dictating this letter, and he said, hey, it's Paul, I can just see him sitting down as lazy boy. Hey, take, a, take up a quill and take a pen. Uh, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, you know, to the saints in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. And then he lets his mind go. And I can't see him staying in the recliner. I see him pacing the floor, overcome with praise for God, God's work on our behalf. Here's my point. Verses 4 to 6 are not supposed to be the stuff of theological debate and angst. Paul intends it to be good news that results in praise to God. The ultimate goal of this 
eulogy is right and worthy praise to God. So, even if you have trouble understanding predestination, and even if you don't agree with the finer points of the way that I've interpreted the passage, I plead with you not to leave upset with God and His electing choice. In other words, let me just spell it out for you. Don't say, I don't believe in election. Don't say, I don't like predestination. It's right here. I encourage you to leave this morning praising God that for reasons within His own good pleasure and will, He chose you. He predestined you to be His son or His daughter. I don't get that, but the result is supposed to be to the praise of the glory of His grace. Let's stand for prayer.